Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hi everyone, thank you so much for being such a loyal audience. Today I have two things to talk about very briefly. The first one is that I have created a page on Facebook. It's called Understand Suicide, the same name as the podcast, because I do miss interacting with you. So you can talk to me directly there or even among yourselves, but I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear ideas, topics, maybe questions that you might have and I could explore here. So just help me do this together. The second thing is that on my webpage now, understandsuicide.com, you have a donate option, so you could donate to the podcast. It could really help me because it takes at least 8 to 10 hours for me to finish each of these episodes. It's a lot of work. I have to come up with the ideas for the themes and topics I want to cover, find someone to interview, you know, get in touch with them. Sometimes it takes months to get someone to say, yes, let's do it. And the editing and all of that costs. So if you find that this is helpful for you, I would appreciate your help. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my podcast and to my YouTube channel. Today I have an author with us. Her name is Sherry Baldwin. She's a clinical social worker who works with trauma. That's the area of specialization. It's mainly trauma that she works with. And she is also the author of the book Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. And I have to say, Sherry, I, just, I was just telling her, I bought her book. It hasn't arrived yet, unfortunately, but I read as much as the sample as I could online. And I mean, just by reading the introduction, it was so moving. Your story is so moving. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, Sherry. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Well, let's start with that. Can you tell us why you got into this? Why did you decide to treat trauma and your background and what happened to you that brought you here? I think I knew from a very early age, I definitely wanted to help people. I just, growing up, I didn't know what that would look like. I used to imagine working in a school and I think that was because school for me was a place where I sought out resources where I tried to connect with other adults to compensate for what was missing at home. So I went to college and I majored in psychology and of course I loved it. And some of the things that I learned about in my classes were things that were happening to me. And it was the first time I could see in words how to describe my experience and how to understand better understand it. Um, When I first started working in the field, after I got my master's in social work, I specialized in eating disorders and 
pretty much from the very first day I got to my job, I was hearing stories of people who had suffered many different types of trauma. There was definitely a heavy focus on childhood abuse, which is my story where I come from. I'm a survivor of childhood abuse. But there were also stories of people who were in auto accidents, people who got injured, training for the Olympics, people who were born without the ability to hear and what that left them feeling. And what I ended up doing was I worked very heavily with people in recovery from eating disorders when I first started in the field. But I recognized that I had a huge amount of trauma that I had not dealt with in my own life. So before I started helping patients recover from things like abuse, I went into recovery. I was in intensive therapy for several years. And during that time, as I got to understand my experience better, and as I saw myself coming out of it, that's when I started working more with people who had dealt with an eating disorder, but at that point were in recovery, had really sort of gotten into a place of remission and wanted to work through their trauma. And that's where I've been for probably the last 20 years. That's been the focus of my work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really uh, touched me was when I was reading the introduction of your book and you were talking about how for the, even though you're just saying, I realized that I had to work through the trauma that I had inflicted on me. But then you say in your book that it took you two years of telling the therapist, everything's okay. I have a great family. I, you know, everything's fine in my life. But what is wrong with me that I still feel so unhappy? Yeah, Yeah, and I'm glad you're asking because I see it a lot in my practice too. When I meet somebody, I never really know what brings them to my office. It's never one reason. And I think it takes time to build trust and feel safe enough to start really opening up the box. Once you open up the box, you know, you go through a period where your life feels like it's unraveling. So what would happen is because I really buried my childhood trauma, I repressed, which means that I basically found a way when I would get up in the morning to act like all was okay. I learned how to dissociate during the abuse. For me, my abuse always happened when I was asleep. So I really did convince myself all through my growing up that the life that I was living was not the life that I was actually living. So when I would sit in Dorothy's office, my therapist, I knew I knew I was in a lot of pain and I I would start to feel things in my body when I sat with her and I was terrified of her. I was always checking her like facial expressions, Mm. so afraid she's going to be mad. She's definitely not going to believe me. So I would talk superficially. I would tell her about work. I would tell her when somebody made me mad, but I wasn't telling her how much pain I was in. And what would happen is I would leave the sessions And at that time, I was seeing her once a week, but I would leave the office and then I would go home and sit in my apartment, which was the first apartment I lived in by myself. I went to, I started therapy about a year after I moved out of my house, my childhood home, and I was suicidal. I would sit there and contemplate ending my life and I would feel despair and darkness and 
that thing like that you said, like, what is wrong? What is wrong with me? What, why am I like this? And I think it just took me a while to realize that I had to start speaking, that if I didn't start speaking, I was never going to be free from these thoughts. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to come on your show was because I feel like the the idea of suicide, suicidal tendencies, suicidal thinking, I just don't think many people really understand. I don't think a lot of people understand what that's like. And I think especially now as we go through such a hard time with the pandemic, more people than ever are struggling with these tendencies, especially people who have trauma histories. Mm -hmm. And and as you said in your book, you you didn't know. It took you a long time to actually, for the memory to come back. So how how was that process with you? And what do you think helped? So I think what helped was meeting somebody, meeting a therapist that I felt genuinely cared. I could tell this was a person that was going to really hear what I had to say. She had a way of uh, showing empathy that I never saw before. I never felt that way with a, one either of my parents. I never felt that way with other therapists that I had met. And I had not met a lot of therapists before her. Um, I knew she was a mom. I had asked her very early in the work. And again, her boundaries were very good. She didn't share a lot about herself, but I still remember the day when I said to her, do you have kids? And I remember when she just said she had kids and what their ages were, which was basically all I asked her. I could see this is a mom that actually likes being a mom. And this is a mom that I always dreamed about having. So I think that helped. And the way the memory started to break through for me was through what we call body memories. I didn't have flashbacks like images of Mm -hmm. the person who abused me, but I felt in my body the abuse. I could feel different sensations. And as I felt that more and more, I became more suicidal. I became more hopeless. And I would sit in my apartment and think, but I don't want to not be here. I do want to live. I don't want to, I don't want to give up. And I think that being able to stay clear about what my goals were for my present and my future was what pushed me to speak. It's not something that it's hard for me to explain the process because it was very gradual. It didn't take, it didn't happen in one day. It took years, right? You said it took like, was it 10, around 10 years? It took me five to 10 years to really be able to tell my story without Mm -hmm. it being fragmented and without dissociating. And it Mm -hmm. took me about 10 years to be able to know my story without wanting my life to be over. As I slowly began to speak about what happened to me, I would then go through a period where I felt hopeless. I wish I didn't remember. I shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't be here anymore. What's the point of living? My life still sucks. Nobody cares. So I had to go through this whole process of reframing and almost like rewiring the part of my brain that just assumed once I tell somebody it's gonna, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be okay. It took me a while. So what I did was as I spoke more, I brought more support in. I got a dog that I totally fell in love with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Her name was Chloe and she was my, she, at that time she was my baby. I got a dog. 
I opened up my own practice. So I had a safe place to work. I didn't have to feel the pressure of working in the system, dealing with the supervisors and all the feelings that come up for that. I found some great therapists through going to different workshops that became mentors. One of them I used to call my guardian angel um, Mm -hmm. because she would be the person I would call when I thought there's no way I can do this anymore. I got an amazing supervisor that was helping me manage my work and stay in recovery. Um, I bought things in my house that made me feel good. I got two kittens. I found places where I could go hike. So I just found different ways of living in the moment when I felt like I couldn't be alive anymore. I learned how to, I learned how to nurture myself and I learned how to do it in a way that felt safe. I wasn't using self-destructive mechanisms to feel better. I was more focused on trying to love that younger part of me that was in so much pain. And Mm. I just, I kept fighting and I still sometimes have days where I'm more fighting I'm so glad you mentioned, uh, you, you said, well, the way that the memories came back were these body, body sensations. And that's something that not many people know, that that's, that's how trauma expresses itself many times. You don't have the memories, but you have, you have disease and you have pain and you have these sensations that you can't explain. So I'm glad that if someone is listening to us right now, and they go, wow, that's how I feel, but I don't know, where should I start? So what would you say to this person? You know what I would say? It, when you start having these sensations in your body, your body does not make up what it feels. It's not like when somebody speaks, uses words. When I used to talk about my, my feelings, when I spoke about my memories, I had this part of my brain that would say, you're just making that up. But when I had body memories, I knew I'm not making this up. It's not like I wake up in the morning and say, now I'm going to feel this and now I'm going to feel that. And that actually, while it was terrible, it's terrible to experience body memories. It's scary. It feels so out of control. Very confusing, I'm sure. So confusing. But I am so grateful for my body and the ability it had to store these parts of my story until I was ready to own it. I think in some ways that's part of what kept me alive. Mm -hmm. So start slowly, but listen to your body. And that's the other thing I was just talking, I've been talking to some colleagues lately about work that I'm doing in my office. And what I notice is that when somebody comes in, I, I just met somebody a few weeks ago who knows her story. She did not repress it. She has more, sexual assault by a peer. She was attacked by a stranger in a parking lot. She has, um, she lives in a family where there's addiction. She didn't, she didn't repress it. And when she's starting to tell me her story, I can see and feel all the pain and she's got the words. But one of the things that we talk about is how to move through this process in a way that's going to keep you sane and safe. If she tries to speak and digest and know all of these things that happened to her over the course of three or four weeks, she won't really be able to recover. It's too, too much, too fast. So Mm -hmm. it's so important too, if you're somebody that knows what happened to you and you're trying to figure out how to recover, you need to really give yourself permission to 
take it very slowly and delicately and make sure that you have support. Make sure that you don't just go to a therapist. Make sure you have a therapist and then you have a plan for after your sessions and make sure you have different ways of managing, whether it's support groups or reading your book or listening to your show or calling a friend. You don't want to rush through the process because then you're more likely to become suicidal or you're more likely to be self-destructive. And to be re-traumatized because we know that that's what happens, right? And the process is so different, isn't it, Sherry? Because for some, like you, you have zero memories, but your body remembers. For others, they don't. Have, they, at least they don't feel anything in, in their bodies, but they have all the memories in little details, but there is total dissociation from emotions too. So it, it's just so different for, every, for everyone how, the, how trauma shows up. It is different. I was just actually reading before we came on. Somebody at the end of my book wrote a testimonial about her boyfriend ending his life in front of her. And as I was reading it, she's speaking about some of the feelings that she has. She was she wrote a little bit about the actual what she saw. And then she started to write more about what she felt as time went on. There were certain parts of his life ending that she continued to sort of see over and over again. But by the end of her testimonial, she was talking about that no matter how much we love somebody or how much we care about somebody, we don't have control over the choices that they make. So she was sort of acknowledging that part of her that felt guilty. And if I had done this or I had said that, but then being able to say to herself by the end of the testimonial, no matter what I said, ultimately he made the choice that he made and she needs to be able to live with that. So it's sort of like she, she, she doesn't remember it through her body. She remembers it through what she saw. And mm-hmm. she was completely disconnected at first because she was so traumatized by what she had just witnessed. Mm-hmm. But, that, but that's, again, the, the intelligence of our minds and our bodies. They know it. Your brain knows when it's too much to take in. So it just shuts down sometimes. Yeah, I think in some ways our brain keeps us alive because if our brain didn't shut down and didn't give us a chance to figure out how to wrap our heads around all this, I think there would be even more rates of suicide, especially among trauma survivors. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I love about your book, and I actually told you this, for my audience, it's so central because we know that most, most suicidal clients they have some kind of trauma either that they don't acknowledge or they do but they don't know what to do with it right and unfortunately sometimes you go to therapy and it doesn't really help as you said you found someone that you could trust but that sometimes takes time uh, I, ha- I have my own experience I had oh my god I, have re- I remember one therapist that I went I think she was the second therapist that I tried in my life and I, and, and I'm Brazilian. Brazilians are very touchy. So, and I didn't do any. I, I, when she opened the door, I just gave my hand. I just gave my hand to her to say, you know, hello and, and hold her hand. And she backed out like this. That minute she did that, our relationship was gone. I said, nope, no, I'm not coming back. I remember I went in and I just said, no, that it was gone. There was no connection. 
so there's no way so sometimes you do have bad experiences where we're not perfect and even and even if we are a good therapist it doesn't mean it's it's fit for you right and yeah. i do think you need to find somebody that can really understand some of your experiences i think even therapists are afraid to talk to people about suicidal tendencies i think there are some therapists that just cannot don't have the space to sit with somebody who's lost somebody to suicide so i think it's so important when you're looking for a therapist and again i didn't know this i just lucked out i think i met somebody that was wonderful and i had heard about her and that's why i called her but if i were looking for a therapist today i would want to know have you worked with people who've repressed trauma do you know what body memories are what do you do when patients are feeling suicidal? Do you just tell them they have to go to the hospital or do you help them learn how to manage that? So I think to be informed about the kind of questions you would want to ask and to recognize just because somebody says they're a therapist does not mean that they're going to be equipped to help you in the way that you need. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com. There's some chapters in your book and you, <clears throat> you have chapters in different themes with different themes and, and many of them are very important to my dear audience, so I want to explore some of them. Can we start with shame? Because shame is there for my, my audience is mainly people who are suicidal or those who have lost love, loved ones or they have maybe kids who struggle with suicide. And shame is there everywhere. In, in my, I think 100% of my audience have experienced shame. So how do you deal with that in your practice, Sherry? I think the way I understand the role of shame at this point is it's a defense mechanism. It's a way to not have to know. So when you talk about working with people who have suicidal tendencies, people who struggle with these thoughts feel like they're crazy. What's wrong with me? Why am I like this? They're afraid to speak about it because somebody might say to them, you're crazy or you should go to the hospital. So I think the stigma around suicidal tendencies is still much more than we want it to be. So my advice for people in that situation is you need to try and find whether again, it's a support group or a therapist, somebody who can help normalize your feelings, not normalize it, like say it's okay to act on it, but to say feeling suicidal it's a way for you to try to tell yourself something. It's usually about experiences that we just haven't fully made sense of. Or for some people, we feel suicidal because we feel like whatever happened to us was our fault. So we think if I weren't here or if I didn't exist, then you know my parents would have been better off or my husband wouldn't act like that. So I think what I would say is don't try to dismiss the fact that you're suicidal, make sure you acknowledge it. And instead of shaming yourself and silencing yourself, try to do the opposite. Try to look at it as this is information that I need to pay attention to. And it's something that I need help with. Mm -hmm. It's something that I need to make sense of. 
And I think for people who have lost somebody to suicide, it's so, it's such a tragic way to lose somebody that we love. And especially if you're a kid and you lose a parent to suicide, because I know that that happens. And I, in getting ready to come on your show, I was reading more about your experiences. And I mean, my heart breaks for anybody that's been through that, because when you're a kid and that happens, kids think everything is their fault. They think if their parents get divorced, it's their fault. They think if their dad hits their mom, it's their fault. They think if they're poor, it's their fault. So when you lose a parent like that, it's devastating. And I think to really be able to take care of that part of you that felt that way and to recognize again that when somebody ends their life, it's not because of something that you said or something that you did. And the last thing you should have to feel is like you should keep your mouth shut. Because shame silences us. It makes us feel like we just want to disappear. It makes us feel like we should just be quiet and we, we shouldn't say anything to anybody else because there's something wrong with us. And what I always try to say to people is that's what shame feels like, but that's not the truth. We need to challenge those parts of ourselves. We need to sit with therapists, friends, colleagues, partners, whoever we feel safe talking to to give us reality checks and to remind us that that's what you feel like, but that's not true. We need people to help reframe that way of thinking and make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about kids losing uh, parents to suicide, but can you imagine parents losing kids to suicide? I, I've met people wow. who've gone through that and I, you know, when I first sit down and talk with somebody about that, I have a, I have a nine and a half year old now. And when anything happens, I think, oh my gosh, it almost feels like your world is unfolding. So when I sit with somebody who's been through that, no matter what I say, I could never fully understand what that's like. And I think what I would say to a parent is, you need to sit with other parents who've been through it and you need to form support networks and understand that you're not going to get over something like this. You learn as you go through time how to live with it. A lot of times what I see with parents who have been through things like losing a child to a drug overdose or to suicide or even to something like cancer is the way that they end up thriving is they find ways to help others. They volunteer, they start nonprofit organizations, they do things that are empowering and they do things to implement change. But I think there are going to be times that that's not going to be enough. There's going to be times when the loss that you've experienced as a parent is just indescribable it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes you just have to say, that's where I am today. And I can't, I can't fix it. And that's when you need to, to give yourself comfort and care. And if you feel like you can connect with somebody else and share, that's when you would want to talk. And you don't want somebody to try to fix it. If you're a friend or your therapist or your whatever say, oh, like, let me try to fix that. They don't, that's no, not what That's not want. the right, yeah, that's no. not the right way to go. You, you were saying you want someone who understands what you're going through. I, I finished two books on grief lately, and one is by David Kessler, uh, Finding Meaning, and the other one, It's Okay to Not Be Okay. And they both say the same thing, that, I mean, they're both therapists, they have clients, they have treated a lot of clients for grief, 
but when they lo he lost his son and she lost her partner and they both say the moment it happened i called all my patients and i said i'm sorry i had no idea what you were going through i thought i knew yeah it's so powerful isn't it and I think it's powerful to be able to share that, especially when you're a therapist working with other people. And I think if you're a therapist and you've been through something like that, I mean, again, I don't think good therapists are the ones that go to the best schools in the world. I think good therapists are the ones that have had their own experiences and are willing to face whatever they've been through and use it to help others, not to try to fix other people, but to try to just be able to empathize to be able to be in somebody else's shoes, it's hard to do that. And I think in order to be able to be in somebody else's shoes, I need to continue to face my own experiences. And that's what you're talking about. And that's what these authors are talking about. And to know sometimes that we're going to feel things and we just need somebody to be there with us, to be a witness, to, to just hear what we have to say and not try not to take it away. <clears throat> Another topic that I want to talk to you and hear you is anger. Because from my experience, and I don't know if you've seen this, but especially those who lose someone to suicide, there is so much anger and they get so stuck. They don't allow themselves to feel sadness, to feel the loss because they're angry and they blame them and then they blame themselves. Sometimes you blame other family members because you're so angry. How could they do this to me? So what would you tell them? I mean, the one thing I think with anger in those situations is if you're only focused on that piece and it starts to go into your other relationships, I think underneath the anger, there's fear. If you lose somebody to suicide, your fear is that what if it what if i lose somebody else and for other people once you lose somebody to suicide you never want to attach to somebody ever again because the thought of having to go through that kind of loss is so dreadful so i think for some people the anger becomes the defense strategy it becomes a way unconsciously to create other losses it's a way to push people if i if I bring only my anger into the relationship, on some level, I'm pushing people away. And in, in some ways that feels safer, even though I don't, wouldn't, I don't think that's actually true. I think for people who are stuck in the anger, that's what it's like. And it's also you're less vulnerable. When somebody's sad or grieving, I think they feel more vulnerable. When you're angry, there's some element of power and control you can feel, even if you're acting out in the anger. Mm-hmm. And what, what about, I mean, the other side of my audience, I mean, when you have this feeling that there's something wrong with me and you become so angry and then you're suicidal and you, and you get angry with being suicidal again, I'm such a misfit. You're not a misfit. You know what I say to people? It's what you've been through. That's what's not normal. We are all human beings. We all have so much in common. It's the experiences that you've been through that make you feel like a misfit, but that's not the same as actually being a misfit. Mm -hmm. I, sometimes I have to say that to people like 20 times. Sometimes I'll say to people, can you write this down? I'll be like, are you ready? You got to write the sentence down. It's not what happened to me or it's not what happened to me that makes me abnormal it's that what happened to me was not normal it's not normal <clears throat> he was saying this and i was thinking about the scene with it's 
irony with Robin Williams. Remember when he was a therapist and the boy, I can't remember the name of the movie, but he had been brutally beaten by his father all his life. And he kept saying, it's not your, that was the day he broke, right? He's, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he was angry and he was hitting him and he kept saying, it's not your fault until he just broke down. Mm-hmm. And Such again, a I, powerful scene. It's so powerful because I think when people are holding on to that belief that it's their fault, then it makes it somehow takes the responsibility off the other person. And I think too, with suicide, you, you of course you're going to be angry at somebody when they choose to end their life, but that's not the only thing that you're feeling and you're not the cause of it. You didn't cause that and you had no control over that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately at the end of the day, even as therapists, we know this, we cannot save somebody else from their own life, from taking their own life. That's not our job. It's our job to help. And what my therapist did for me was she helped me to save my own life. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a difference. And I, I heard something um, last week. I interviewed someone who she's very special. She, she's a counselor here in, in Portland. And she said, and also, I don't want to just keep you alive. I want you to have a meaningful life. I want it to be worth living. That's a huge shift, isn't it? Because sometimes, many times, all our colleagues do is let's send him to a hospital because I want to make sure he doesn't die or she doesn't die. And that's not the whole point, is it? No, I think the most important thing we can do as therapists is help people not act on these urges and keep people... In a, in a hold them accountable for their safety, but to also say, what are some reasons why you are here? What are some things you want for yourself to be able to sort of have that vision board of goals, dreams, different things that they lost that they can still reclaim. It's, it's never too late. It's never too late to fall in love. It's never too late to get a promotion or to buy something you've wanted to buy or to feel something that you want to feel it's never too late. So I think when I work with trauma survivors and I did this in my recovery, I would ask myself, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through all this agony? Well, I had answers to that question and that's what helped me to keep doing what I needed to do because I had goals and images and things that I wanted. And I think in some ways, especially when somebody's suicidal, that's so important. I was sitting with somebody the other day and I said to her, look around your place where you live right now and tell me what you like about it. As you're sitting in your house right now, tell me the things that you love that make you feel safe. And there's pictures on the wall, there's animals running around in the house. So I think it's so important that we continuously remind ourselves and access those parts of ourselves that have things sitting right in front of us that we want to be here for. That's part of what keeps us from not acting on the suicidal tendencies. Yeah. Can we end giving my audience some healing strategies? You talked in the beginning, it was part of your healing process. I had a dog, I brought in a dog and then kittens and that has a lot to do with I gave myself permission to love, right? Maybe I was not ready. And you you talk about this in your book too, that it took you years to have a relationship. You were in what, in your thirties when you had your first 
a relation, romantic relationship because you didn't feel safe, basically, right? And it took you a long time to realize that. But before that, you said, okay, I, I, I'm not ready to be loved yet, but I can love. So you brought in your dogs and your kittens. And so can you give my audience some tips on, on which way can I, how can I find ways to nurture myself and to take care of myself while I'm going through this process? I think one of the best gifts I've gotten in my recovery is being able to watch myself nurture my child or watch myself nurture my dog and my cats through the years. So my advice is as you see yourself in your relationships with other people and you recognize your ability to nurture and comfort, try and give that back to yourself and acknowledge how important that is and that if you can give it, you can, you can receive it too and you can receive it in ways that feel safe for you that you can set limits, that you can set boundaries, but to try and find different ways to feel like you have a way to hold yourself, a way to sort of grab a hold of that part of you that sometimes is in so much pain. And to even think about, even if you're not fully ready to let people in, if you're still afraid of intimacy or you're still afraid to really just be vulnerable, Picture people in your life that you've met through the years who you can imagine doing that with and have them in your house with you. Picture them in sort of like standing around you, wrapping their arms around you and reminding you that this is a process and it's a process that takes place over time and that if ultimately that's what you're working towards, you will have that, but you have to just keep working on making space to be open to having it. Mm-hmm. Well, find ways to love, basically, right? Well, and also do things like tangible things, like when you go hiking or you go to the beach or you're walking your dog or you're doing yoga Mm -hmm. or I'm on my Peloton probably more than I should be because for me, it's like my best friend right now. Of course, yeah. I'm having... It's so fun. We're all and I'm, home, right? We're right. all home. <laughs> and it's sitting right there. And I'm like, oh, I could do, you know, my Broadway ride or whatever. But I try, even when I'm watching TV sometimes, try and just keep finding ways to heal those parts of you that are hurting. And you can do it through nature. You can do it by walking your dog. You can do it when you see strangers on the street. You can do it when you're watching something on the television. So or even when you're doing art or singing, all these different sort of tangible strategies. If you're horseback riding, try and not only be present in it, but love yourself in it. Like imagine that horse that you're riding on talking back to you, saying to you, you got to keep fighting. You got to keep going. Like these are things that in some ways may sound like a little like that sounds a little corny, but it's, it is but not real. It's not really. Even if you make eye contact with your dog and you see your dog smiling at you, tell yourself, my dog loves me and my dog needs me to be here because he or she needs me to take her on the walk or give her food at the next meal. And that my dog really loves me and he or she loves me because I'm worth being loved. I am lovable. <laughs> Sherry, you are mo- you are definitely lovable. I hope my audience gets your book and reads, and they will learn so much. And I can't wait until it gets here. I mean, this postal service is taking too too long. <laughs> 
I can show you what it looks like just so you this yeah. is what it looks like yeah I, I will <clears throat> I will have it on my notes and in the video I'll, I'll make sure I have the image too but I'll have the link so they can get it thank you so much Sherry for being with us and for sharing your pain and your process and your trauma and thank you for everything you're doing <laughs> thank you You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com. <laughs>